Last week, uh, last week uh, we were discussing uh, from the beginning, and I started talking about a broad picture overview of the Bible. As we're going to go from this week all the way until the end of the year, actually starting from last week, and we're going to start looking at the major points that happen within the Bible, major events, major turning points, major people, major books. And I'm trying to give a broad picture overview. And last week we looked at creation. Last week we looked at how God created every single thing that he did. He did it with a purpose. He did it in order on purpose. And he did it in each of the days in the creation week. And we kind of broke that down. Last week we ended with God saying, you know what? This is really good. This is amazing. This week we are actually going to be moving on to what would be the next major thing inside the Bible. And I hope you really enjoy it. So I'm going to open us in prayer, and then we are going to jump into God's word. Father, thank you for this opportunity. Lord, help me to focus and to treat your word with the due respect that it deserves. Help me to tell the truth, to be honest always, and to come across clearly as you would have me. Father, help us to learn and to know your deep love for us because of these days. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Genesis 1, chapter 31, uh, chapter 1, verse 31. Genesis 1, verse 31. We are going to be jumping around in a lot of scripture today, so I will be telling you, and I'll make sure that it's up on screen, it'll be in the sermon as well, and I've got notes that I've been able to put in the bulletins as well, if you want to write anything down and go and look at it later or ask me. But This is where we ended last week. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So evening and the morning were the sixth day. Then we end with God resting at the end of that. Everything is very good. When I was a kid, um, my dad, his best friend, his name was Wayne Wright. Um, My dad's best friend, he was a good man by all accounts. He owned a small electrical business. Um, He had a daughter and a wife. Um, He was involved in the community. Uh, he, He was very active in the community. He died suddenly when I was in fourth grade. Um, Just, uh, it was a freak snowmobiling accident. Nobody's really anybody at fault. It's just the, the snowplow had came by and it had ripped off the, uh, one of the metal signposts. It had ch- clipped it. And when he was coming through, uh, the sign was no longer there except for the post. And he was coming through at night and his ski caught it and it threw him off the snowmobile and he landed headfirst into an oak tree and, and just passed suddenly. When I was in sixth grade, um, my best friend Dan started having migraines daily, just migraines after migraines. They would get so bad that he started missing school. And when he started missing school and they were just constant and unrelenting, his mom took him to the doctor and they found out that he had a tumor, a three inch size, softball sized tumor in the back right side of his brain growing. The options were either to let the tumor go which if they let the tumor continue to grow, it would actually put so much pressure on his brain that he would pass before the end of the year in my sixth grade year, or do surgery, which the surgery didn't always offer the best outcome because there was a potential, it was small, but there was a potential of him losing all of his motor function because of where it was on his brain. We left Genesis 131 saying everything is very good, 
But in my life, and maybe in your life, you've had to ask the same question, why do bad things happen to good people? You've probably had someone ask you this exact same question. We have things happening around every single one of us that just ask us and make us question, you know, well, God, you're supposed to be good. God, you're supposed to be wanting the best for us. Why do you let these things happen? And today, I hope to answer or at least point you towards something you can solidly stand on and say, you know what? This is where God stands, and this is how I know that he stands here. Now, when I think of bad things happening to good people, I look at different people in the Bible. We're going to look at different people that... I think they're good people, but bad things just happen to them. First one I think of is I think of Job. In Job, if you'll turn with me to the book of Job, uh, let's see, we go into a little way into the Old Testament. We have Esther and then the book of Job. While you're turning there, uh, Job is a good man. In fact, actually, the Bible tells us that he's, he's such a good man that he actually even offers prayers and stuff for his children. He's found in the temple day and night worshiping, and he is setting forth things, and he's trying to do things for other people. He's a very wealthy man. He's a very well-known man. But what happens here in Job chapter 1, verse 12, it says this. Lord is talking to Satan. Satan comes up to him. It says, behold, all that he has, talking about Job, is in your power. Only don't lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. The Lord, we're told in the Bible, in Scripture here, allowed Satan to go up against Job, who was a good man, and just gave him over into the hands of Satan. This is verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 12. In chapter 2, verse 9, just a short ways later, not long after the Lord allows Satan to actually go into Job's life, you find that things are getting worse for Job. Um, his friends come by and they belittle him and they, they, they basically say all of this has happened because you must have some secret sin that you're not allowing anybody to know about. You must be a horrible person for God to allow this to happen. And one day, all of his kids die. He loses all of his fortunes, all of his herds. He has livestock. His house burns down. It all happens almost all at once. And then, almost like the icing on the horrible day cake, in chapter 2, verse 9, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. His wife comes up to him completely hopeless at this point as she too has lost everything. And she decides to have the attitude, Job, what are you holding on to? There's nothing left for you. Just, just curse God because obviously God's the reason why all this has happened. And then just die. That's got to be heartbreaking. To lose everything and then, and then your life partner, his, his wife comes up and just says, you know what, this isn't worth it. When I think of bad things happening to good people, I think of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a man, well, actually, you know what, let's turn to Matthew. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 11. I want to tell you what Jesus says of John the Baptist before I tell you what happens to John the Baptist, which you might know. Matthew chapter 11.
Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. This is what Jesus says of John the Baptist. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Of those born of women, what he's saying is no man alive on earth today is better than John the Baptist. John the Baptist is great. He is good. He is doing exactly what he is told. Do you know what happens to John the Baptist? He's beheaded. Exactly. John the Baptist, while doing what Christ has asked him to do, ends up going to prison. He doesn't take long later. He, he gets, and then he gets beheaded shortly after doing what Christ has said, after Christ has said these words about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who is so good and so great, and that Jesus says none is better than him. So this guy has amazing faith. He's doing exactly what he's told. In verse 2 and 3, I'm going to rewind because Christ said these because of this. In verse 2 and 3 of the same chapter, and when John had heard, in prison, as we know, he's in prison, about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one or are we looking for another? John had bad things happen to him, even though he was following Jesus and doing what he had been told to do, what he was called to do. He was shaken to his core. His faith was completely shaken, so much so that it caused him to question, Jesus, are you the guy we're supposed to be looking for? We should, should we be looking for somebody else? And Jesus says, this is the guy that no one on earth is better than. This guy, that's hard. To have your faith shaken that much because you're doing the right thing and have those kind of things happen to you. Another person that I think of when I think of bad things happening to good people is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is a man who goes out and though he originally is against Christianity finds Christ, Christ encounters him on what we call the road to Damascus. And then he, as we say, sees the light. And during that conversion, he changes everything and he sets forth and he goes everything in to seeing Christ and his name proclaimed. What happens to Paul? If you jump with me to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians Chapter 11. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm not going to read the whole verse section, but it goes from 16 to 33. If you know anything about the Apostle Paul, these are the things that happens to him. And he says that I am not boasting of these things. This is just what happened to my life. And I'm going to give you a very short burst of this in 16... Uh, chapter 11, verse 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16. I say again, let no one think of me a fool, otherwise lest receive me as a fool, that I might also boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, as it were, but foolishly in the confidence of boasting. So he says, look, I'm, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what happened in my life. Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I'm going to boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are so wise. We put up with one brings you into bondage. And he says, keep on going down to verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they seed of Abraham? So am I. So he's saying, you follow this law. I'm part of the religious sect. I am, I am part of the seed where you guys say, this is the best place to be. I'm, I'm part of the people that you're supposed to be. 
In verse 24, he says, From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rod. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day. I have been in the deep and journeys often in perils and waters and perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen and perils of the Gentiles and perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils at sea, perils among false brethren. And it goes on and on and on. And this man is a man who preached Christ That's all he did. He just preached the love of Christ. He said, this is who Jesus is, and he is constantly in danger. People constantly tried to kill him, even though he was trying to do good things. And chapter 12, the next chapter, just a couple of verses down, I want to read exactly what happens to this good man. If this stuff isn't enough, where he's shipwrecked, where he's beaten, where he's stoned, God also sends something else into his life. And he recognizes it in chapter 12, verse 7. At least I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. This is a man, a messenger of God. And he has these horrible things happen to him. He's a good man. He's following God's word. He's following God's plan for his life. And he still gets above all these other things. He gets what he calls this thorn in his flesh. And we know for a fact that he's pleading with God. And you would think that if anybody would get God's favor and get God to answer his prayer, Paul would be the guy especially for all the stuff that he goes through. I mean, if someone has a list of, hey, God, this is what I've done for you. Can you cut me a little bit of slack? Paul would be the guy. But God still doesn't answer, and he says, my grace is sufficient for you. I want to let you know at the offset, something that we've said before, and I'm going to continue to bring up throughout this year, both the things that he, meaning God, the things that he does, the things that he does not do, he does with purpose. He does them in a certain sequence on purpose. So last week, we ended Genesis chapter 1, started going into Genesis chapter 2. So now we're going to start this week's message. And really in the beginning is where it all started. Genesis chapter 2 is where I'd like you to turn. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we know before that God had created man, and then he had rested. In Genesis chapter 2, God actually goes into a little bit more detail on what his creation account of man is. He creates man. He gives man a purpose. He's very intricate in the way he actually deals with man here at the beginning. And it's neat to find this purpose. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 through 9, And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward of Eden, and there he put the man in whom he formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight, that was good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What's neat here is you find out that when man was created, man was given work before the fall. I know work can be tedious, I know it can be tiring, and I know it can be outright exhausting. But the work that we were given before the fall wasn't designed to be that way. But work was part of God's original plan for mankind. We were designed to do things. We were designed for a good work. We find that here. 
What's also interesting is that God puts the tree of good and knowledge in the middle of the garden. This is perfection. This is everything is great. Everything is good. And God still puts this here, the knowledge, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why would God do that? Why would God put that in the middle of the garden? If this is creating Eden and this is creating perfection here, why would God do this? Both the things that he does and things that he does not do, he does with purpose. And he does them with a certain sequence on purpose. Now, I want to explain to something at the offset. Does God tempt people? God does not tempt us. James, the apostle James, writes in the book of James, in James chapter 1, verse 13. I'm going to turn there real quick just so I can show you this. James chapter 1, verse 13, he says... Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. We know that God doesn't tempt us. So why did God put the tree there? God put the tree there because he didn't want robots. God could have easily made us these robots that did exactly what he said and exactly what he wanted without a free will. But God wanted us to have a free will and he wanted us to choose to love him. Just like you want somebody to love, the, uh, love you of their own free will, you don't want somebody to love you that has to love you. That's not really love. And we each know that from our own lives, that someone that's being coerced to love us isn't really love. That's not really what you are desiring. And God made us after himself. He wanted us to choose him. And having this tree there gave us the option to choose him or to not to choose him. So, everything is perfect at this point, but then our rebellion happens. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6. Sorry, yeah, we're going to go back and forth. We're gonna, you're going to get really good at flipping through your Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field in which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said that you shall eat not, eat, not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden. But the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that in that day that you eat, your eyes will be opened, and you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took the fruit and she ate. She also gave to her husband, and he ate. Now, there's something interesting here. This is where our rebellion started, right here. But there's something important to note. There's something that hinges on the rest of the story and the way that Eve took and ate and she gave to her husband. There's a detail that's missing from this that's found in the New Testament in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 that's incredibly important to the rest of the story. In 1 Timothy Chapter 2, verse 14, you find out that Eve was actually deceived. In 1 Timothy 2, 14, I am going to read really quick here because it is so important. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Adam knew full well. Paul wrote, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Adam knew full well what he was doing. 
Adam knew full well that he was sinning and he still did it. That is the reason why the curse rests with man. That is the reason that we as men carry that curse. That is the reason why Jesus is born of a virgin, of a woman, and doesn't have an earthly father because the seed, the sin, is carried through the men. We are held responsible because of Adam's act. It is the man who chose, who knew full well what he was doing, and he decided. And it was at that moment that he chose his wife and a relationship with her over his relationship with God. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, as we're still in the New Testament here, in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, this is what this says in this overview of exactly what I just explained. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, started with one man. And that sin spread to the rest of the world. Now, stay in Romans for a minute. Paul does a really amazing job actually describing some of this. We know that sin has entered the world and that it came through by one man. And we have a struggle. We have a desperate, desperate struggle. Now, in Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, Paul starts enumerating what sin is. I'm going to read you what Paul says, and then I'm going to give you something maybe a little bit easier to say. Romans 7.15, this is Paul struggling with the sin in his life. For I am doing what I don't understand. For what I will to do, that that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good, but how is it no longer I who do the sin, but that the sin, it dwells in me? Paul's in this struggle. I want to do the right thing, and you've probably been there. I want to do the right thing. I want to, I want to follow God, but it's so easy to do the wrong thing. I just... Paul was struggling with this, and it's clear from his words that he had this struggle, and he was constantly there. When I was in CEF, Child Evangelism Fellowship, I was helping out during my college days, one of the side ministries that we did. We taught what sin was to kids. And in that definition, we said it was anything we think, say, or do that displeases God or goes against his law. That was the easy way to say what sin is on a child's level, anything we think, say, or do that displeases God or goes against his law. In Psalm 51... David also says of this sin that for an iniquity or in sin, my, my body was conceived through my mother's womb. He was brought from sin. The sin is inherent. We inherit it from our parents. David recognized this as well. So why? Why do bad things happen to good people? Let's think about this for a minute. Is God fair? It's an appropriate question to ask. Is God fair? If you're one of my children and you're fighting over a Lego, fair really depends on who's holding the Lego and who wants to keep the Lego. Fair becomes in the eye of the beholder. But God is not fair in the way that my boys are. 
God is perfect and he's without bias. And in fact, if you look it up in the dictionary, that's what fair is. Perfect, without bias. We tend to be biased. You see, if God is fair and he is perfect without bias, then he's bound to judge sin. And if God perfectly judges sin and he does it automatically without hesitation, then we would never even draw our first breath. God deals with our sin on his timetable. And you've probably seen that in the world, that different people have different consequences for sin. And you realize that there are evil people in the world that get away with bad things for a very long time. You see men with horrible, horrible plans get away with them for years on end. Why? Why? God is not fair. He is just. And just is a completely different word. Now, there is a a band that I listen to occasionally, and I love the way that they actually quote this in the song. And I wanted to read this to you because I love the way this comes off. In the middle of his song, he says, because I've failed and I'm ready to be shown how you've told me the way and I'm trying to get there. And this life sentence that I'm serving, I admit that I am every bit deserving. But the beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair. Why is life not fair? Because God sent Jesus and probably the most unfair act ever. Jesus who was perfect. Jesus who didn't deserve anything. Decided to come and become our punishment for our sin. Now the question is why? Why did he come? To answer that is in Hebrews. Hebrews, which is just the book before James where we were earlier. Hebrews chapter 9. Verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling of the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, whom through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God to cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, what was happening is that animals were sacrificed to remove our sin. What would happen is the priest would bring up the animal or the person would provide the animal, the spotless animal, and then they would transfer or mentally place their sin into the animal and say uh, the same thing that we ended up doing with Jesus on the cross where he took all of our sin. The sin was placed on the animal. But the problem with the animals, as the Bible points out, is that the animals couldn't take that away forever because the animals weren't actually perfect So there needed to be a different sacrifice because every time you did this sacrificial system, if you walked out of the temple doors and you sinned, you stubbed your toe and you sinned on the way out of the temple, you needed a new sacrifice. It was never ending, never ending. And there needed to be something better. In Hebrews 9.28, just a couple verses down. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. So the question is, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? I want to give you this answer. I want to say that we're not innocent. None of us are innocent. 
And this is where I want us to turn. Romans chapter 3, just a couple books back. Just a couple books back. Romans chapter 3, back to Paul again. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Just a couple of chapters over in Romans 6, 23. It says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ our Lord. What I want to say, and it's not easy to say, is we assume when we ask, why do bad things happen to good people? We assume that we are innocent. We assume good means each one of us are innocent. And the problem is, as soon as you are conceived, you are not innocent of sin. You were born in sin. And the Bible well puts that out there. And it says it again and again that we have each sinned and we fall short of God's glory right from the very moment of our conception. When we ask this question, we assume that we are innocent. And I know it's hard to think of a child who has just been born as not innocent because in our eyes, we look at them and what we do is we judge our fairness by our terms and say, this child did nothing, he was innocent. But in God's eyes, he had already sinned. We are born in sin. And it's not an easy truth. And it's not something easy to tell. But it is true. Now, those men that I mentioned earlier, I talked about Job. And Job chapter 42 in Job chapter 42, at the end of the book, last time we saw him, his wife was telling him, just curse God and die. Just, just roll over. It's not worth it. Why are you still breathing? God used this in Job's life. In Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, this is what Job learned through this circumstance. Then Job answered the Lord and he said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and am dust and ashes. Job realized his place. Job realized that his creator had good intentions for him, but that he was a man who needed to be humble because of his place. We each need to learn to become humble people before our God. And because Job was able to realize his need for his humility before his God, this is what happened in verses 12 through 16. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He called them by the name of the first Jeremiah, the name of the second Keziah, the name of the third Karen Hapak. And it continues on. Job, in many ways, through his tragedy, Ended up on the good side. He got blessed at the end of his life. He literally doubled everything, even though he had lost everything. Job's story turns out all right. But as we talked about earlier, 
John the Baptist, he was beheaded. He wasn't set free. He didn't get a chance to have the happy ending. What he did was he followed what he was called to do. And the thing that happened to him wasn't the beautiful ending that we all want. Paul the Apostle, he was also, uh, as legend says, most people believe that he was beheaded while he was still imprisoned as a Roman for believing in his God and telling people the truth. The story doesn't end out perfect for everybody. Sometimes we have a happy ending. Sometimes we don't. The takeaway. Both the things that God does and the things that he does not do, he does with purpose. He does them in a certain sequence on purpose. The question we ask, why does a good God allow bad things to happen to good people is actually the wrong question. We are not innocent. We are each sinners and God is not fair. However, God is just and he deals with sin on his timetable. What is probably the most unfair event ever in history, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, though innocent, and free from sin, chose to die on a cross taking our punishment so that we could have a relationship with him again. The relationship the way it was designed in the garden before the fall. All we have to do is trust him at his word and that salvation from our sin's punishment is ours. I put this one up there. Romans 10, nine and 10, Paul says this, and I love this verse. I always, I love using this verse. That if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. It's that simple. I know it's not easy news. And we ask, and you will be asked, I guarantee it as a believer, if anybody knows that you have put your faith in Christ, they're gonna ask, why does a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? And I'm sorry. But the question assumes that we are innocent. And I know that's not easy to look at, especially some of the young lives that are lost. My dad's best friend died early on in his life. He was young. He was actually about my age now when he passed. Actually, um, the one thing that my dad had of him was his rifle. And actually, my dad passed that on to me. It's one of those possessions that you're never allowed to give away, never allowed to sell. It only goes back to dad. If you've ever gotten one of those, this stays within the family because this man was that important to the family. He died, left a widow and a fatherless child. My best friend ended up having a surgery. And to this day, physically, he is perfectly fine. Mentally, he is perfectly fine. He doesn't know Christ but his surgery went fine. He walks today, and in fact, actually for a long time, he had this really cool bubble while the skull was still forming, and it was squishy. It was like one of those squishy balls that we like to touch it, even though we weren't supposed to. And uh, God deals with sin on his time, people, and he wants the best, and I love quotes, and there's a quote that I want to close with. It's by this guy named C.S. Lewis, and in the book of Narnia, if you know the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there is these 
kids that go into this fantasy land and the person that is the archetype of Christ because this book was essentially written to bring people to Christ. That's C.S. Lewis's point in the book. He actually makes this person inside the book, his name is Aslan, he's a lion named after Jesus. And he says this about Aslan. The girl asks one of the creatures, is Aslan safe? And the beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Our God is not safe, but he is good and he is just. You can trust him. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity today to look into your word and to see the truth. Lord, I ask that you help us to apply it. Help us to be humble enough to accept it and to know that you absolutely love us, even though it sometimes doesn't seem that way. I know you are not a fair God in the way that I would like you to be fair, but I know you judge us perfectly. Thank you so much for unfairly sending your son to die in my place. Thank you for the redemption that is mine. Thank you for the salvation from my sin's punishment. Lord, I ask that you continue to watch over each person here. Help them to place their trust each day in you and grow and to realize that you are a God who can be trusted and that you love us. Thank you so much for today. In Jesus' name, amen.